Welcome to the Arena Deckless Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined by Brian Gottlieb, and we have a full Zendikar Rising spoiler preview. I, I, I know it's correct to call them previews, right? But it's like calling the entire set a preview seems wrong. Well, it's, it's just the set at this point, right? Although I guess it hasn't been released yet either. Yeah, so. we, we, have the, we have the set list. But that's not their preferred nomenclature either. So anyway, we have all the cards. We know what they do. Cards in our possession, decks built, excitement generated. I I mean, I'm pumped for this set. I I think there's so much good stuff here. I'm having a blast building decks. And for the first time in a long time, I'm getting that like itchy feeling where I really, really want the set to hit arena so I can start playing games. Is this set specifically good or is it just not the old sets it's both i I really do think it's both i think there's so many i've done more scryfall searches looking for like weird things and bizarre creature types and just really trying to get a sense of the entire deck building space and that means that there's good tools to push us in different directions so you're being you're being incentivized to yes. try and make certain things work and I, yeah yes. i definitely like that there are a lot of build arounds which does make brewing pretty exciting and i think we they're all coming together well too which is a huge part yeah. of it. like they, they all look re- like respectable decks in most instances right there have been a few things where i'm just like eh, you know maybe this is missing a piece or two it didn't quite come together but there there are certain things that it's just like oh it's it, it's all here this is awesome yeah, I think I think we've also been on kind of opposite ends of the spectrum as far as brewing is concerned. Somehow I'm the person going through and like building tribal decks. That's fine. I, I want to do that too. I, I mean, I, I basically put together the way I generally approach preview season is I just get out notepad document and just look over the spoiler over and over. And every faint idea that hits my brain, I type into that that notepad doc to come back to at some point. And half the time I go back to it and I'm like, what the hell was I talking about here? I have no idea what this means, but sometimes I'm able to put the decks together and I have all the tribal stuff there. I think clerics look super interesting to me. Exploring party on multiple levels seems really interesting, but there's just other cool, big explosive stuff. And I don't really restrict myself to say today's my day to build creature decks or today's my day to do this. I just let my interest hop to wherever it wants to go. And it's pulled me in other directions thus far, but I still think the creature stuff is exciting too. I I have pretty much the same system as you. One of my favorite things to do is uh, basically like once the, the format is kind of like run its course or whatever, occasionally I'll go through and delete some of the notepads on my desktop and just kind of like clean it up a little bit, especially mm-hmm. on my laptop. And yeah, opening those things and and just, like going back and looking at the ideas. I usually know what I was thinking, but I'm like, well, I'm, I'm very happy to delete this. You yes. Know, no, no one needs to see this. <laughs> you don't need to know this ever crossed my mind. Yeah. Is is this going to bring me or anyone in my life joy? No. No. Absolutely not. Let Get it, it out of here. I, I guess as far as like the brewing is concerned, I've maybe just been on low hanging fruit, I guess, where it's like, okay, here here is this very obvious thing thing that we could be doing and seems like it could be worth it. I'm only looking for like one specific thing to enable like a payoff and then I can just go from there. But the stuff that you're building, man, uh, especially like, I don't know, one of the decks you posted today, like the gruel landfall thing, it's like, there's so many moving pieces, man. Like I, my, my mind didn't even get to that yet. Well, I I think so much of it just comes from, okay. So there's two approaches you can take when you're trying to make 
a really, really special deck, I think. And this is often how I go. And when I say special, I mean unique, not the thing like, like if clerics is good or rogues is good, we're all going to find some approximation of it, right? So we're going to put together 10,000 different versions of it. They're all going to get played. And at some point that will come together. But if you're trying to do something that's further off the beaten path, I basically have two methods I use to get there. The first is just finding a card that I think is underappreciated. And the second is finding some kind of thematic tie that people are just not perceiving as something that's important. And in the case of the Gruel deck, which we'll talk about more when we talk about some of the specific cards we want to mention, uh, it was a combination of both. I I think there's multiple cards that are underappreciated. And also, it's an example of pushing on these double-faced cards and the theme of how many lands can I theoretically play in my deck as as hard as you can possibly push on it. Because that deck started was my thought process is, can I play 60 lands? That's really where I wanted to go. Like, can I actually just have <laughs> nothing but lands in my deck? I mean, and you can. You can. But- There's no reason to, though. And this version that got up to 40, look, I don't know if this deck is good. Obviously, I haven't played a game with it, but something interesting and really special going on with it. And like I said, we'll get more into that as time goes throughout this podcast. Right. So we have a top 10 episode, sort of. We've been trying to sort of perfect the archetype of this show for a while. We've tried a, a bunch of different iterations. And for this one, we're, we're trying something new again. And I, I don't think this is the final form, but I do think it's probably better than what we did the last few times. Yep. Uh, just going like my number 10, your number 10, not great. And especially I don't like the instances where, you know, I have a card at my seven spot and then we get to your number three and it's my seven and then we just kind of like skip it or whatever. Yeah, so, anticlimactic for sure. Yeah, especially, yeah, when it gets down to like, oh yeah, well, we already talked about my number one, so whatever. Yeah. So this one, we have a, a list of cards that is kind of curated in a, the order that we want to talk about them and sort of talk about the format in general. And then we'll just give our top 10 list at the end. Yeah, all of these cards appear somewhere on one of our top 10 lists. I think we're talking about, how many cards did I say it was? 17? Six, or? Six, 16 out of uh, 22, because we both have like an honorable mention. So. Oh, he's taking that honorable mention. So yeah, 16 different cards we're going to talk about, and then we'll reveal our top 10 lists at the end of the show and rank them appropriately. Although that's kind of like the silliest part of the show, because the difference between the number one card and the number six card is pretty arbitrary in most instances, but people like lists, so we're not going to get completely away from that format. Right. And I mean, a lot of it has to do with how we're perceiving like our rankings. And I don't know, like, I'll maybe I'll talk about this later, but it's like, you know, your, your number one is like my six or something. And a lot of like, we both think the card is very good and we both think it's going to show up in a lot of places. I just don't think it's like a, a four of in a lot of places. Therefore I have it ranked lower, you know? Yep. And for me, so. it might just be like, oh, this is the card most apt to completely break in half and warp the format around it. So then I'd make that my number one card, but not necessarily me thinking it'll be the most played card or anything like that. So it's all very sticky and very murky and but it's lists. basically supposed to be a fun exercise. So don't take it too seriously. Yeah. So uh, we are going to start by talking about the pathways. These are the new pseudo dual lands in the set where, you know, front front side is a land that taps for blue backside is a land that taps for red We needed something like this, obviously, with Shocklands rotating, and we definitely did not need another set of lands that ETP tap because we already have Temples and Triomes 
fabled passage early, a lot of the modal double face cards in this set ETB tapped as well. So having something that ETBs untapped is very, very good. Uh, there are certainly instances where, you know, you have a lot of stuff in your deck that's like, you know, blue, blue or red, red, and you would prefer that this were an actual dual yeah. land versus like just choosing. But for the most part, I think that these things do their jobs uh, very well. It's kind of awkward that we don't have all 10 of them, but it just kind of is what it is. Yeah, I've definitely run into some severe brick walls missing things like the Golgari one and the Simic one, but that's just the way these are going to be given to us. And we've certainly dealt with it before when it comes to dual lands, so it's not a new problem. It's, it's just always feels weird. Having built a bunch of decks now, the difference between a color that has a pathway and doesn't is just night and day. There's completely different things you can do. For instance, I've worked a bunch on... Uh, counters decks, things that benefit from having plus one, plus one counters on stuff. And the payoffs in black are nice. Like there's very real things you can do, but the base payoff is always going to be green. The problem is there's no green back black dual land. And when you're trying to be aggressive, it's going to be so, so hard to make that work. So you're almost defaulted into playing a Selesnia take on the archetype for the time being until you get this untapped duel. So it's a, a big limitation on the format, but it just speaks to how good these are in the untapped role. Like you said, they have some flaws. One of the big things that's really come up over and over is that castles are mostly out at this point. It's very difficult to get a castle into your deck because you don't have something like a hollowed fountain uh, as your untapped land that can immediately pay off both your castle Ardenvale and your castle Vantress. So that's been a huge deck building change. But on the whole, these are so important for the format and they're so good in the decks that benefit from them. And the decks that have access to multiples of these, you can do some really neat stuff with your mana. Like I had a, a Mardu reanimator windowed a deck that I posted on Twitter and really a very light splash for white that was of very little cost to my mana base because I was able to play my Triome and then I got two of the pathways and the mana looks super clean. So I have enjoyed these in deck building. Certainly we knew these were going to be a staple of the format and I haven't seen anything to change that opinion. Right. And in the context of your Mardu deck, it's, it's pretty interesting where you were base red black for the most part, but you still ended up with 16 white sources almost freely. Yeah. You know, you, almost by you, accident. Pathways and the Triome, and then if you want to play Fable Passage, it's like, oh, okay, well, maybe we can just play three straight colors in Mardu and not have to worry about like, oh, what what is our splash? What do we have to minimize on our mana base? And I, is is Mardu the only one that is set up like that? Because we were talking about like Saltai mana bases earlier and stuff, and it seemed like I think those... Esper is as well. No Triome though. No Triome. Yeah, yeah. So it might just be Mardu. Yeah. yeah. So so. Yeah, Sultai is is in a spot. Oh, Jeskai. Where... Jeskai has blue, white, and red, white, and a Triumph. Okay, so Jeskai Mardu are the. Oh, Jeskai has have... three actually, right? There's blue, red, blue, white, white, red. Is that correct? Uh, I'm, pre no. I'm pretty sure that's right. No blue, white, right? Is there no blue, white? Yeah, no blue, white, because it's it's not part of the creature type. Okay. It's so weird because there's six of them, right? So it's yeah. like there's, there's an odd one out. But they do have the same setup as Marty, where they have the two Correct. and then the Triumph. Okay. So yeah, uh, you know, Sultai, for example, uh, has Triumph one pathway. And you when 
Uh, granted, you're green, right? So you might have some additional fixing in there. And there's uh, the sort of like, you know, lay of the land, traverse the Uvenwald without kicker uh, kicker card, where it's like, well, maybe this can do some fixing or whatever. But for the most part, you basically have to be like two colors with a splash, whereas uh, Mardu and Jeskai, it's just like, nah, whatever. You, yep. you kind of just have free reign to do whatever you want in three colors. Yeah, and I think that points to when we have the full set, there's going to be some real good three-color aggro decks. Uh, it's pretty plausible that your mana is going to look clean in a lot of spots. You just have to be cognizant of multiple pips of the same color. You really want Correct. to spread across pips, and there's plenty of ways to benefit from doing that, uh, some of which we'll be talking about as we go throughout this cast. Yeah, so Pathway is kind of kind of boring because it's like it, it's part of the mana bases of the format, uh, but you kind of have to start there to be able to figure out what is actually possible to do in the format. And yep. I think we have a pretty good idea of that. But yeah, I mean, the, the Pathways and the DFCs not having basic land types, like I, I keep trying to squeeze castles into my decks. I mean, at least if it's like Lockthwain or Ardenvale, but... Yeah, realistically, probably not very playable anymore unless, you know, you're like mono white or something, which which is definitely sad, but it's definitely a, a cost that you have to pay. And I don't know, it's it's cool that you have choices too, because it's like there's also things like Field of Ruin and yeah. the new Creature Land, and you had like Radiant Fountain in your rule deck. There's the Kicker Land if you're doing stuff like that. So like you also have some colorless options too, so... It's, it's not just super straightforward, like, okay, you include all your dual lands and away you go. Yeah, I was talking with Matt from our Discord on Twitter last night, and I had posted like a pretty simple black-red deck, and it was just playing the red-white flip land as a way to be able to cast my Loris in, from the sideboard. Yes, yes, love it, love it. But like we ended up having a pretty long back and forth conversation of all the different considerations that came into doing that. Like it's correct to do that, but how many mountains am I supposed to play? Like I kept three mountains in my deck and I only had two of the flip land. Am I just supposed to have four copies of the flip land or is there punishment for going down that road? And all of this is balanced around the idea that I want some number of castles in my deck. So I still need to have enough basic swamps and how many double face cards do I have? And the act of building mana bases has become so, so interesting in a good way. I mean, maybe this is bad to admit, but sometimes as a magic player, I don't want to mess with building mana bases. Like, I just want to do the interesting <laughs> stuff and get the you cards together. You are not together. alone. You're not yeah. alone. So, like, that's a little lazy. And certainly, I recognize that building a competent mana base is a huge, huge part of deck building. In some cases, it's everything. But here... I'm not minding doing the mana base work because I think it still has a ton of really interesting decisions and it, it's just cool to see how much thought space you can open up with these double face cards. And look, my concerns are still there. I haven't put them aside. Everything I said last week, they're, they're present. But as a deck building thing, I have really enjoyed these cards. Yeah, same. I, I don't mind the mid-maxing on mana bases as long as you have like a clear goal and are trying to get something out of it, but it's like, right. you know, min, min maxing how many, like doing the Bant mana bases last season, for example, like the Bant Urian ones where you end up with like a lot of temples and like trying to figure out how many of each Bant temple you should play. That was just like, just I'll skip it. Just someone, someone tell me what to do. It probably can't be that wrong, whatever. But when it's like, all right, if I play the third fabled passage, does that allow me to play, Castle Lockthwain in my rogues deck, you know, it's like that. That's like an actual gain that you get 
right? And so like yeah. that's something that I'm willing to fight for and work for. Yep. Questions are far more interesting this go around. And on the topic of mana, uh, we have Omnath, Locus of Creation. And um, I'm going to be reading cards. This will be the last podcast in this format that we're reading cards from Zendikar. Anytime past this, we're just going to have to assume that you know what the card does or you're able to look it up on your own. But we'll be reading them this time because everything's still fairly fresh. Uh, Omnath, Locus of Creation, RGW, Legendary Creature Elemental, 4-4. When this enters the battlefield, draw a card. Landfall. When a land enters the battlefield under your control, you gain four life if this is the first time this ability has resolved this turn. If it's the second time, add RGW. If it's the third time, this deals four damage to each opponent and each planeswalker you don't control. Yeah, we had a lot to say about this card last week. Everything I said still applies. I'm still very into the idea of playing this. I think it, alongside Uro, makes up the starting point for the classic approach to mid-range in this format. If you want something that looks alike, a lot like the Sultai decks or the Bant decks that we've been playing for a while now, it seems to me like they're going to be focused around Omnath. And you mentioned last week you had built the mana bases and they came out fine, and I hadn't done it yet. Now, having built a ton of decks... They're completely fine, and Omnath is very castable, and this isn't challenging to do. And I think since we did last week's cast, we got the Harrow replacement. Did that exist when we did this last time? I don't remember. It, it didn't. Okay, that's a big it get. Did. Yeah, because when when I wrote my article, I definitely would have talked about that card because that's I mentioned this last week, but like hitting the second activation is pretty easy thanks to Fable Passage and things like Uro. But like you kind of had to jump through hoops to hit the third one, which you know, is is semi-important, right? But, like, you definitely want the ability to do that. And the the Harrow makes things kind of trivial, you know, depending yeah. on how many copies you want to play. card I'm talking about is called Roiling Regrowth. It's a two-colorless green instant. Sacrifice a land. Search your library for up to two basic land cards. Put them onto the battlefield tapped. Then shuffle your library. So you just go ahead and get that mana payback immediately from Omnath. Really cool setup. And then there's all the other stuff that has come out in the meantime, too, with more and more of these double-faced modal cards. You can get your land count so high. I have Bant decks, you know, Uro-based setups, not quite the Omnath stuff, but very happily playing like 33, 34 lands. I'm sure you can do the same thing with Omnath. I I have decks that push to 40 lands now. So I I know it's possible that you can go that far and just routinely hit these landfall triggers on every single turn of the game and still benefit from the burst of cards that a combination of Omnath plus Uro is going to provide for you. So nothing has changed as far as my assessment of this card. It's still very high on my list and will be an archetype in the format. I'm very sure of it. Have you seen many people talking about this card? Because I haven't really, and it it sort of strikes me as odd. It's been so weird. There's a bunch of cards that like I'm just excited about and I don't hear anyone speaking about. And I don't know if it's just that I'm engaging with the conversation in a different way or I'm not looking in the right places or maybe the release schedule has a lot to do with it. But no, I haven't heard Omnath mentioned as much as I expected to. But I would say that about like 15 different cards in this set. So that's certainly fair. It's also kind of weird too, timing wise, because there's historic PT happening as we're recording this too. So I I think a lot of people are focusing on that. 
Yeah, I think that's accurate. It certainly seems like what people have the conversation in general has been way more historic focused than standard slash new card focused recently. Uh, people are into historic, and I I don't blame them. I think historic's pretty great. Uh, I said that last go around, and that that's fine. But based on my deck building excursions, I think once people wrap up this PT, they're going to be pretty excited with what they return to. A good litmus test for me. So like the preview started on Monday, I think, and I write on Wednesdays. So when it was time for me to shotgun a card to write about, Omneth had not been taken yet, despite being one of the first cards previewed. Interesting. And that's one of the things where it's like, you know, if if something cool gets previewed on Wednesday, then I'm golden. But in, in that case, I had to take one of the older cards and I was like, wait, no one's taken this card yet? Like, what the hell? Uh, and that was that was strange to me. But. Yeah, that is surprising. Uh, this is this is a flashy one. I mean, it, it does a lot. Now, I don't know. Maybe the four color mana cost is scaring some people off weren't comfortable going down the road of building the mana bases yet. It's hard to say, but I I believe in this card wholeheartedly. It seems like it has all the tools. The immediate value is just like, that's the checkbox we look for with new creatures. Am I getting paid as soon as it enters the battlefield? And the answer is a resounding yes with Omnath. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those things where it's like, am am I the one that's wrong or is everyone else (laughs) like doing it wrong? I don't know, but we'll we'll find out, I guess. Yeah. Time will tell. Next up, Blood Chief's Thirst, B, Sorcery, uh, Destroy Target, or well, I guess Kicker to B, Destroy Target Creature or Planeswalker with Converted Mana Cost 2 or less. If this spell was kicked, instead Destroy Target Creature or Planeswalker. So this this is a, a pretty nice one. I think that this is going to sort of be the de facto removal spell. Uh, I could see instances where you would still prefer Murderous Rider to this, or maybe you play a mix or whatever, but... I am very drawn to cards that allow you to gain a mana advantage. And, you know, if you're using your one mana spell to kill your opponent's two mana creature, it's small, but it's like, it ends up being a big deal. You know, like that is how you don't fall behind. You get to enter into like your double spell territory a lot sooner, which allows you to either, you know, catch up or push even further ahead. And then, uh, obviously, it's a little bit narrow, but you you still have the kicker side of things to make sure that this card is never actually truly dead. So this this card just seems like a slam dunk to me. I think this is the best removal spell in the format. I built a bunch of black decks this week for my article on Star City because I was writing about Skyclave Shade. And I balanced all these considerations and like, oh, do I want this removal spell or that removal spell? And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, no, I just want Blood Chief's Thirst because... The difference in having access to a one-mana removal spell in games against aggro decks is just night and day. It's totally different. I mean, that's why so many sideboards nowadays are just, they start with the one-mana removal spells in the sideboard. How am I going to be able to keep pace against aggro? And that's almost always the answer. But Blood Chief's Thirst is flexible enough that you get to just play it in your main deck. And it's rarely going to be completely dead. If you pay four mana to prevent an Uro from attacking you over and over, you're happy with that. Did you win on mana? No, but you were able to answer the most devastating thing in your opponent's deck while still having outs for their, whatever, Lotus Cobra, their Gilded Goose, however you need to check them in the early game. Those options were still present for you. I've done some cool stuff with the kicker on this card. I've used that as the backbone for like a kicker-based deck, and I think that's a neat interaction. It just scales very well. Uh, I am happy this exists, and it feels like a little bit of the reactive spells catching up to the proactive spells for the first time in a while 
Right, and I, I think it's also important to note that there are a lot of playable one-drops in this set and some very good-looking aggro setups. Yep. So maybe having this sort of effect wouldn't have been super important last season, but it is definitely important now. So uh, you can look forward to it being like relevant in way more cases than it would have been last season, right? So, I believe so, yeah. Uh, next up, we have Null Priest of Oblivion, 1B... 2-1, creature, vampire, cleric, kicker, 3B, menace, lifelink. When this enters the battlefield, if it was kicked, return target creature card from your graveyard to the battlefield. Like, Zombify is not very good, but Zombify tagged on to an already solid body. Like, this card seems so nice. I mean, menace, lifelink is like a pretty good combination too. The the body itself, like 2-1 is not super impressive, but it's like, this is a card that's good early. It's good late. This allows you to either just have a normal value game plan, or you can actually kind of like build your deck around this, trying to reanimate some stuff, which I'm sure you've done. I have, and I've just played it as a fair card too. And I think that's the biggest point in favor of... No, no priest of oblivion is I just believe in the front side. Like I, I think two, one menace lifelink is a really, really nice body, super relevant creature type. Cleric is important yep. as far as fill, yep. filling out your party. So like I mentioned, I wrote about Skyclave shade on star city, but basically as soon as I called Skyclave shade, this card was spoiled. And I'm like, uh, I think I just like this better. I like them both. I think Skyclave shade is also very good. But this card is a little bit more versatile. Like you mentioned, it is both aggressive and weirdly able to enable combo and long games of just fair decks. So one of the big pickups with this card, and I think this stretches back to, I won't say, is Historic an Eternal format? I actually have no idea. But yeah. it's, it's important for Historic because you can kicker this Null Priest of Oblivion while it's being cast with Luris, which I think is a big get, but also you have way more ways to buy back your Luris now if you're playing cards like this, because for a long time, you were just all in on Luris. You didn't really have a way to rebuy that particular element of your deck. But if you just have no Priest of Oblivion in your deck, you're adding a bunch more options to keep your loops going. And it's come up way more in my standard decks. I don't know if it's going to be a focal point of Historic, but I can see it happening occasionally. But in standard, all these Luris decks look so much better with access to Null Priest of Oblivion. Yeah, I mean, it's especially good if you are just playing a deck that has Luris normally. Yeah. You know, like not necessarily playing it as your companion. Because sure. then you have like way more shots to actually do this. And it's, it's not as mana intensive. You know, it's yeah. like... Generally, when you're paying three mana to like get your companion and then casting your companion and then your companion dies, you're pretty far behind at that point. You kind of need it to like actually stick around if you're going through all that investment. But if you just like cast Luris on three and then they kill it and it's like, all right, whatever, cast another Luris, cast a one drop and, you know, they're they're going to fall pretty far behind and this is going to be the nail in the coffin for sure. Yeah. In, in general, graveyards have improved a lot with this set and we're going to be talking more about that as we go through our list but be ready to account for graveyards yeah uh cling to dusts and soul guide lantern are yeah. the two the two best ones probably 
Yeah, that's where, again, most of my list have started. Scavenger News. Any green deck I've built has had four Scavenger News. Any green aggressive deck, I should say, has started with four Scavenger News. It's nice that the counters cards in this set are pretty good, and Scavenger News picks up counters on its own. So I've been doing a lot with that interaction. Uh, More graveyard stuff. Aura, Skyclave, Herophant, 2-dub-b, 3-3, Legendary Creature, Core Cleric, Lifelink, Whenever this or another cleric you control dies, return target cleric card with lesser converted mana cost from your graveyard to the battlefield. I I keep expecting these cards to say to hand, but to to battlefield is just such a big improvement, right? And I don't know. We've seen a lot of these four mana lords, and they tend to not really hit all that well because it's like, well, this this isn't sticky enough or you're not getting enough bang for your buck basically like right off the bat or whatever like they all have their own sort of issues and this is one where since the thing gets put directly on the battlefield and it doesn't this doesn't necessarily have to be killed itself it works with everything else and then you have no priest to potentially like bring this back and like start that chain all over again i mean this is a very powerful card yeah i love the way these decks are able to go so so long and arc arc fiend's vessel also a cleric so if you need some 5-5 five, five flyers, you can usually get them that way. Uh, I've had a lot of Arcfiend's Vessels decks over the past few days because it's just so, so trivial to get that card back now. And we are all fortunate that there's not a pure Stitcher supplier in the format and we're forced <laughs> to settle for Meyer Triton because that card would be doing some absurd things. Are you going as far as getting sacrifice outlets into your deck for this card? Like, are you playing Wolstrider alongside it? Uh, I mean, you can, like, there's a bunch there's of- There's got to be, like, Bastion of Remembrance, Strider Cleric stuff you could get up to. Yeah, maybe. The three-drop slot, you, like, you have a lot of options, and I don't think either one of them is really, like, the slam dunk. You have to play this, you know? Mm-hmm. So you do have a ton of options, but uh, I was definitely looking at Archfiend's Vessel as just like, okay, this is, this is what we're doing. We're just going to hope to draw this card basically every game because- uh, you know, you have Null Priest, you have Luris, you have Aura, Call the Death Dweller if you want to go that route. You have so many ways to actually bring that thing back, and it just seems like that's going to be a, a big part of the game plan. Acquisition of Ruin, or excuse me, Inscription of Ruin, which is a very modal card, which is one of the problems with like building around Arcfiend is like, oh, you know, your Arcfiend plan doesn't come together and you're stuck with this kind of worthless reanimated spell in Call of the Death Dweller, but now you get to a potentially mind rot your opponent or kill something that's impactful oh, sure. on their side of the battlefield. So I, I've been quite high in Inscription of Ruin in these decks as well. Right. And Agadim's Awakening is another one that we're going to talk about a little bit later, where it's just like, oh, look, another reanimation card. So I guess, yeah, we're just doing this. It's almost trivial at this point. It really is. Next up, we have Acquisitions Expert, 1B, Creature Human Rogue, 1-2. When this enters the battlefield, target opponent reveals a number of cards from their hand equal to the number of creatures in your party. You choose one of those cards. That player discards it. So uh, no matter what, this is just a Ravenous Rats on, on its own with an extra toughness. And th- I mean, there are some other things too, where it's like you could you could just like play this in Clerics because you have a bunch of pseudo reanimation things and having a cleric in addition to this gives you a little bit of agency with what they choose to discard or if you get to cast this with a cleric when they have two cards in their hands you know they don't just like discard their land and keep their sweeper or whatever you actually get to get the card you want uh so yeah this is this is a card that 
you know, it says rogue on it, so it could go in that archetype. It says party on it, so you could try and build around it. But also just in any black deck, this seems completely reasonable. I did not expect to have this card show up in so many of my decks, but it's just everywhere. And it's based a lot on its typing. Human rogue on this type of effect is very different from just like stupid rat that has no relevant creature types whatsoever. I've been thinking a lot about the concept of numbers that are not what they appear in magic. And I'm going to talk about another one later on in this preview, but a, a, a big one here is the scaling of this card, like getting to getting to look at two cards as opposed to one card. It doesn't sound like much of a difference, right? Like it doesn't really it, seem like that well, should fundamentally change the card. It's, it it's does. literally, it's literally twice as much. And then <laughs> good, good way of looking at it. I think that's a great way of looking at it. And it, it, it matters twice as much, quite frankly, like when this is looking at two or three cards, it's on a whole different level of power. And this has enabled so many different things. Obviously, we mentioned the reanimation support that's present for all this stuff. You bring it back with Loris. You bring it back with Inscription. You bring it back with Agadim's Awakening. You can bring it back with literally everything, it feels like. It serves other parties. But one of the cool things I was able to do with this was use this as one of my hits for Renota, which I think is a really appealing idea where Renota isn't supposed to put this broken thing into play. It just finds good humans that have an impact on your opponent's plans. And this was in a shell that had a bunch of other party stuff going on. So they were very powerful acquisitions experts I was putting back onto the battlefield and I had it alongside more reanimation spells. So this has just unlocked a bunch of archetypes for me. It has that weird confluence across every single goal I'm trying to achieve. It's enabling Winota, it's filling out my party, it's challenging my opponent's cards in hand, it's a reanimation target. And I, I thought this was just a run-of-the-mill replacement for a burglar rat, and I think it's much more than that. Yeah, I do too. I, I will note that it's like, yeah, you know, two is twice as much as one, right? Sometimes they, they still just show you two lands, sure. right? And you don't really get a choice. But those those situations I'm describing where they have very few cards in hand and they are forced to discard, you know, like they show you a land and a spell and you get to take a spell from it. Like feels great. Yeah, that is, that is awesome. That is potentially game changing. And then, yeah, if you ever get to look at their entire hand, I mean, you, you are, you are thought seizing them and you still have this body and you can reanimate it and hit it off Winota and all these other things. Like, yeah, this is, this is a very, very good role player. Agreed. And also the the party stuff I don't think is really constructed, but it certainly gets better as more cards are released, right? I, assuming that you know some of these creature types stick around, like maybe rogues is a little too weird to be in every set or whatever. But you know there might be new warriors and new clerics that then make right. this card better too. Yeah, it's more supported than I thought it was. I'll say that I, I didn't struggle as much as I. Thought I like I thought you just have to stretch your mana base super thin, but you could do a full party in red black very easily. There's very playable warrior, wizard, rogue, and cleric across those colors, and you're not playing any bad cards to get there. So if that's your goal, you can do it. I, I promise you can do it. I think most of the payoffs for full party though reside in white, and I've been less thrilled with white's options for filling out a party. I I really like yeah. the black red setup a lot more. But as I mentioned, the Mardu mana bases look pretty good. So maybe there's something to be said of just putting the white cards alongside those cards I previously mentioned and the sum of the whole will be worth more than its parts. 
lot of space to explore. Uh, a full party, achieving full party just seems difficult to me. You know, like, it does. Having four creatures is a lot, right? Like, what is what is happening in that game where you haven't won already, right? And I think this format will likely be one where spot removal is played certainly more than last season. Yes. You know? But, like, there, there are a lot of things worth killing, and that means keeping a full party is going to be very difficult. So... Things like Acquisitions Expert are more of what I want to lean on, where it's like, yeah, sometimes this is for two, sometimes it's for three, but like even on its face, it is still a solid card. Yep. Then we have Zareth San, the Trickster, 3UB44, Legendary Creature, Merfolk, Rogue, Flash, 2UB, Return an Unblocked Attacking Rogue you control to its owner's hand. Put this... From your hand onto the battlefield, tapped and attacking. Whenever this deals combat damage to a player, you may put target permanent card from that player's graveyard onto the battlefield under your control. And I do think that this is a very relevant card for rogues. I think it's very powerful, very awesome. Definitely a, a payoff worth building around. And certainly even more powerful that their backup theme is just milling your opponent. But I, I don't know, man. I think like this, this card is... Definitely the sum of its parts, right? It's like this this sort of thing would not exist if the surrounding rogue stuff were also not good. And this card could just be a, a proxy for Soaring Sky Thief or maybe Nighthawk Scavenger and just like any of the rogue cards, really. Like this this kind of comes with a package. It does. And I, I like that package. So let's address the elephant in the room because a bunch of people messaged me on Twitter when we were high on rogues last week and basically every single person had the same thought and they said, how could you possibly be high on rogues when all you're doing is filling up your opponent's graveyard for their Uro? So do you have a response to that? Uh, yeah, that's fine. I mean, they, they were probably going to do that on their own, right? Seems like it seems like that's and, something they pretty regularly achieve. And I don't know, people, people get weird, right? Because it's not like Uro ends the game. It is a very good card. It's very efficient. It, you know, prolongs the game and provides you a win condition and accelerates you. It kind of like does everything except like win the game outright. It just provides you a lot of value, which makes it easier to win the game. But it's very beatable. Yeah, I, I think that mostly tracks. I also just think Uro is going to be an important part of this format. We all know that. Again, when I was building my mono black decks this week, they all started from a place of what am I going to do about Uro? And they had Soul Guide Lanterns in the main deck, or sometimes they had Timeret. And when I'm building green decks, I'm building with scavenging news. And there's no reason Rose can't make the same type of concessions. There's nothing clean, really, that super fits into their theme that I think is the best possible answer for them. Maybe it is just like I'll deal with it in sideboard games and I'll bring in my soul guide lantern and i'm fine with that particular well, approach you really don't want a soul guide with the rogue deck because you, you it, get the it spot turns... removal with it though like i guess it would probably be cling though right yeah well yeah i i guess yeah soul guide lantern can uh cycle and cling if you're clinging an uro that just kind of stinks because you just gain the three life like you have this card to use later but yeah i don't know i mean for for the most part i just want to be like i will counter it or kill it or attack in the air and yep. not not really be concerned with this six six ground body, and I don't know, like yeah, you you get very far ahead if you get to attack with an Uro, right? 
but it's not like the game is still not over, especially in a deck that is attacking you with, you know, a bunch of like powerful flyers. So yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't really get the whole like, Oh, well you mill them and then they're going to play Uro and you lose. It's like, that's not really what happens. It's like, there should, there should be a downside to milling your opponent and enabling your cards to be very powerful versions of themselves. Right. Like, Say say you start from the threshold of your opponent has eight cards in their graveyard. You have Thieves Skills Enforcer, which is like a one mana three two death touch. Wind Robber can sacrifice itself to draw a card. The the Lord is obviously very powerful. It's like yeah, all all these cards are very powerful if your opponent has cards in their graveyard. And then if they can cast an Uro or whatever, it, it doesn't stop that. You still have a bunch of very powerful cards. Well, but their graveyard is smaller, right? Their graveyard is smaller, but like at that point, you've you've probably like enabled the threshold for your eight cards, right? And then right. they remove some, and then you have a lot of cards that can then fill their graveyard up again. Your engine you is know? still in place, basically. Yeah, like I, I it, sure if if your engine goes away because they killed all of your creatures, and then they bring back Uro, that is bad. But at that point, they could have just drawn an Uro, or they might not even need it. So it, it just it doesn't that argument doesn't fly with me. I think it's a good, it's a fair point. I think it's worth mentioning. I don't think it's disqualifying. That's where I would fall on it. And I, I think you get to respond to what they're doing, just like they get to respond to what you're doing. And if you are building your decks with Uro in mind, you can find ways to account for it. And if the deck is just the best thing to do, be doing and smushes all the non-Uro stuff, then it's like, well, okay, I, I, I can live with this where I have to cobble together a plan against this one small part of the metagame. And we're also all operating under the assumption that like Uro will continue to be a huge, huge, greater than 50% part of the metagame. I don't think that's true. I really don't. Like there's there's so much good stuff here that as powerful as Uro is, there's ways to account for it. It will be an important card in the format 100%, but I'm not willing to just write off another format to Uro before we've even played it. Right, same. But at that point, why even bother? Why are you listening to this podcast? Yeah. You know, just like Uro is the best thing. The end. It's like no, it's not. You still have to play the games. You know. Yeah. Ugh. Now, now you, now you made me a little heated, a little angry. I riled you up. What do you got to say about rogues? Uh, I like the archetype a lot. I have been torn a little bit about their identity. Uh, I tried. I think my first approach is assumed it would be more disruptive than it actually has to be, but but this just is supposed to be an aggressive deck and it's supposed to close windows very quickly. Uh, You shared a list with me that was focused on Mind Carver and Mind Carver is the one black equipment that goes up to what, plus three, two, if they have eight cards in their graveyard? Uh, Three, one. Three, one. Thank you. This seems like the right way to build this deck. It's it's really funny like how much it it actually mirrors demonic embrace because they're both plus three plus one and like this is three to equip and that's three to cast on your graveyard you know so like making that comparison was yep. was pretty easy but yeah this this card is a card that I'm not supposed to like but I do and I I think there there are so many cards that mill your opponent which sure feeds their uro or whatever but like this this is one where the the payoff is is so big. You, t- you take your stupid 1-1 one, one flyer, and then you give it plus 3, plus 1, and you just attack your opponent to death very, very quickly. And even if they kill your creature, you know, whatever. Still there. Like, yeah, you still have this equipment that's ready to move around, and, you know, this just gives you a way to use your mana in the late game. And it allows you, you to trade up with your kind of crappy creatures against, like, maybe their big green creatures or whatever. And... 
don't know, just like things like Brazen Borrower, Nighthawk Scavenger. It's like those with this equipment is very, very scary and they need to remove it basically immediately. So I, I really didn't see a reason to not just max on this card and like kind of build the deck around it. I think that's a good approach. The creatures in this deck are very powerful too. Usually you put together a bunch of dumpy rogues and you're like, oh, this isn't really going to... You're going to have to assemble something from from your individual parts and hope they combine to be something good. But your standalone threats are houses. Like Brazen Borrower is a legacy quality card. Nighthawk Scavenger is just loaded with power. Zareth is a big body. So all these things on their own are completely acceptable. It's not like the usual put together some really crappy flyers and hope they get the job done. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of how it's been, right? It's like the, the various like blue white flyers decks and yep. uh, the, the Seraph deck, the, the eight mana seven, seven thing. It's like you yep. had to play so many just junky healers. Hawks. We were playing healers. Hawks. Right. And this one is you, you get uh wild Nicotle effectively. You get <laughs> a flying men that can sacrifice itself to draw a card. And obviously this is like, if, your your stuff is enabled right but like basically all the cards like mill your opponent too so you're going to be enabled by like turn three turn four a lot of the time and then uh soaring sky thief was the kind of like nail in the coffin where before there was a big hole in the two mana slot on the mana curve and i thought we were going to have to play like some welkin turn level stuff to kind of fill the curve and it's like nope never mind this this card is actually just quite good yeah that was a big pickup pretty late in the preview season. There's also a bunch of like good mind rots you can play, which I don't know if we're going to have to go as far as mind rot, but if you really have to start working to enable your ability to turn on all of your cards, there's good options. I keep mentioning inscription of ruin. This was a card that I was very close to including on my list just because it's proving itself to be very versatile, but like that does some of the trick. And there's even one, uh, I'm blanking on the name right now, but it puts an additional card beyond just the two mind rotted uh, yeah. from your opponent's library into the graveyard. So if you have to work to do this, I think you can make it work reliably. Mind drain, target opponent, discard two, two cards, mills a card and loses one life. You gain one life. Yeah, you don't, fine. you don't though, because there, <laughs> there are just so many cards, like all of your creatures, the things that you want to be doing in the early game, just mill your opponent anyway. You have to do it incidentally. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's just wonderful, man. It, it is it is very clear that there was like a bunch of love and care that went into making this archetype because you have two ones, you have a good two, you already had a couple of good three drops in Borrower and Scavenger. Scavenger kind of covers you against aggro decks. Uh, Zareth is one of the best possible finishers you could ask for because it's such a huge tempo swing. Mm-hmm. And and then there there were plants like uh, Drowning Lock in Eldraine, yeah. where it's like this this is just counterspell Doomblade now. Oh, the the plants are so good for this set. There's so many cards that you go back to, and you're like, ah, there we go. Should have seen it coming. Yep. Yeah, it's it's great. I've I've been very happy with Rogues, and you know if the metagame shifts or whatever, and like this is not the the type of Rogues deck that you want to be playing, like. Mind Carver type stuff. I mean, you can still play a couple more flyers, Lofty Denial, Shark Typhoon, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. Skyclave Apparition, one dub dub, two two creature core spirit. When this enters the battlefield, exile up to one target non land, non token permanent you don't control with converted mana cost four or less. 
When this leaves the battlefield, the exiled card's owner creates an XX blue illusion creature token where X is the converted mana cost of the exiled card. Did this one last week too. Still quite high on it. Unfortunately, my biggest knock against this card is that I haven't quite found the homes for it yet. Uh, I've worked on like some blue white flyers and quasi spirits, but we are we are low on spirits right now. Yeah. So I don't know 100% what I'm supposed to be doing with this. And most of my white decks have been usually built around sweepers. That's th- they're control decks right now. I, I haven't found white mid-range or white aggressive decks that I'm completely over the moon yet. That's not to say they don't exist. They could be out there. Uh, and if they are, it's probably because this card is enabling them. Yeah, so this uh, this this enables Winota a little bit. And I think the, the place that you want this is, yeah, definitely some white sort of mid-range leaning creature deck. And I've looked at this for clerics. Uh, you, again, you have a bunch of different ways to reanimate it. It, it doesn't have a good creature type. You know, but there are still ways to reanimate it outside of that. And I was also looking at like Daxos Heliod stuff because a lot of that core is still around. Yeah. So I I don't think that that stuff is bad necessarily. Like you don't have a Johnny's Pride Mate, but that was never really one of the the good cards in the deck anyway. So it just means that you're not playing like Healer's Hawk, a Johnny's Pride Mate, Linden. You're just doing other stuff, you know, like you still have the the two uh, white cards that can protect things like Alcyon of Life's Bounty and Selfless Savior. So like you have you have good one drops, you still have solid two drops. And then it just kind of depends on like what your mid to late game is going to be. And Amiria's Call fits that to some degree. There's uh, Felidar, whatchamacallit, Sanctuary. Is that its name? Uh, retreat, Felidar Retreat, right? That one. Yeah, you got that thing if you want to do that. So I don't know. That that sort of stuff might be okay too, but it's also the sort of archetype that has just thoroughly disappointed me in the past. So who knows? Yeah, I know that feeling. I, I'm i still very, very high on this card. I just know that it probably is a card for later in the format, I think. I think it's going to have to wait for some other pieces to come in around it. A lot of what is surrounding it uh, just doesn't doesn't excite me right now in comparison to the other stuff that's going on. So yeah. for the individual card, I, I'm right there. I think it's a player, but for the surrounding pieces, haven't been revealed to me yet. I mean, at the very least, going back to Pioneer, Modern, I mean, this just clearly slots into Spirits type decks. So yes. uh, no for matter sure. what, you're, you're going to be seeing this card somewhere. Yep. Akum Hellhounds, Red Steplinks, R01, Creature elemental dog landfall whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control. This gets plus two plus two until end of turn. We don't have fetches. Uh, we do have like Fable Passage and Evolving Wilds, but especially in the case of Evolving Wilds, you probably don't want to go there. But R as a two three, I think is completely solid. That is definitely better than a lot of the stuff that we've had for the past year or so. And obviously there are issues where you know if you don't play this on turn one it's pretty bad you run out of land drops this set does a lot to try and mitigate that yes and i'm a believer in landfall and red aggro i do think the deck is going to be red green but i am a believer in the deck mostly with you i think there's a lot of cool pieces for the landfall deck this time and 
the flaw that people are going to have is that they they're going to want it to look like the old landfall decks and I, I don't think that's what's going on here you're benefiting from cheating very very high on mana counts you're going to be playing like 27 28 lands in your aggro deck routinely if not greater than that that's going to go very well for you as far as triggering akum hellhound goes but also you're going to have to look a little bit more towards secondary payoffs and things like rada come to mind there's even just like the hard landfall payoffs like things like i'm blanking on the name of the card now and nahiri's lithoforming yes you can do stuff like that if you want to go really hard and just like generate a bunch of triggers on a single turn uh i think that is a landfall approach that i expect some decks to look into and maybe that's less about this particular landfall card but more about the archetype in general i think like the the 3-1 Trampler is more inclined to benefit from those type of setups than Akum Hellhound. But still, they're all stand-ins for the landfall idea, and it's a good idea. There's there's good support. You just have to build it a little differently than you did in the past. So this, this is not on our top 10, but tell me what you think about Wayward Guide Beast. This is uh, R22, Creature Beast, Trample Haste. Whenever this deals combat damage to a player, return a land you control to its owner's hand. So this card definitely got... A very, very unfair shake by virtue of being called the new Goblin Guide. It's not people, the new Goblin Guide. People are so mad about this card. Yes, yes. but it, I think it's probably fine. Uh, my fear is that you generally want to do this on like turn three. That's when you want to start attacking with it. And you can play it on turn one and not attack. That's fine. My fear is that it's going to get brick walled in a lot of those scenarios. So it's not actually going to be able to enable its dream. Uh, against creature light decks, though, I think this is probably a really important part of the landfall strategy, and you benefit a lot from having this in your deck. I just know if, I don't know if it's going to be worth the slots over other cards. Basically, I think this card is playable, and it's nowhere near as bad as people have made it out to be. But I'm still not sure it's going to actually be part of the landfall archetype. I, I think in very aggressive versions, you're going to want a decent amount of these, like you know maybe three, maybe you don't play all four or whatever. Okay. But I, I think for the more mid-rangey ones that you're talking about, you know, maybe you're a lot lower than three copies. Uh, because in, instead of like bouncing your lands to ensuring that you're making your land drops, you're probably going bigger to things like Rada, and like that will right. help make your land drops, right? And that makes more sense. But I want to play uh, the green adventuring gear and the Gruel Two drop and yep. Just just kill people. Just that get them seems dead. fine. I, I don't know why people were so mad about this card. Like this approach seems completely reasonable, and this card will be part of it. And go for it. I I'm not over the moon about that particular build of the deck, but it'll be fine. It'll be respectable. If if there's not a lot of spot removal, like step links type stuff, and the red green thing, the the two drop that gets plus two plus two, like. Those are bigger than most of the things that people are doing, especially if you're able to trigger landfall multiple times. Mm-hmm. And yeah, if, if they don't if they don't kill your creatures, like you can set up eh, maybe not turn three kills, but like definitely very consistent turn four kills. Yeah, I, I think I feel one landfall creature short of really enabling this archetype. And if there's just one more cheap landfall creature, I would be all about it. That's what the adventuring gear is for. Yeah, that'll do it. Anyway, outside of that, even if you're playing like mono red aggro, I think you play a Coombe Hellhound and then you just have some of the DFCs and that allows you to get to 26 potential landfalls for this thing. So I don't know. 
this this card is good. Definitely, if aggro is going to be playable, it starts with one drops, and this is one that I'm I'm pretty happy about. Cool. <laughs> that, that's just like a, a very dismissive cool. You know, you're just like, oh, that's no, nice. I, I that's like nice, this card. Buddy. It's look. There's always going to be attention in my. <laughs> involvement with building the aggressive archetypes it's rare that that's the road that my attention goes down but you played red green landfall in a pt i did and when i think the deck is good i will play it again and this is the card that could make red green landfall good again there's a lot of pieces around it for the time being not what i'm excited about but i believe it's a strong card this card is better than scythe leopard and snarling gnarled. Well, I don't remember the the stats on Slide Leopard. It was like they? G11 landfall plus one plus one. Is that what it was? Yeah. And then maybe, the two maybe, drop was one one plus two plus two. Well, that was that was played at GOP. The the gnarled was two two plus one plus one. There wasn't a plus two plus two in that deck? I don't think so. It was it was pretty bad. How do we ever kill anyone? I guess uh, this is why I didn't do too well at that PT. Battle Rage become immense. A darkness right. command? Yeah, I guess so. Maybe Scythe Leper is not the, the card's actual name. That might be the like G32 Hexproof. Or oh, yeah, yeah. Scythe, Scythe something. Something like that. Who knows? Anyway. anyway I blocked those cards out. Yeah, you played in a pro tour and then immediately threw in the trash. Right. Jace Mirror Mage, 1UU, Legendary Planeswalker. Jace, starting loyalty is 4. Kicker is 2. When this enters the battlefield, if it was kicked, create a token that is a copy of this, except it's not legendary and its starting loyalty is one. Plus one, scry two, zero. Draw a card and reveal it. Remove a number of loyalty counters equal to that card's converted mana cost from this. Go for uh, we, we did this week one and nothing has really changed in my assessment of this card. I think it's strong. I think it is stronger than people expect. You can do some cool stuff with the kicker costs we know now. So maybe that's something Jace is supposed to be doing more of. I think we did a good job summing up this card. It still feels more like a sideboard option in a lot of instances to me. And a lot of my blue decks have had multiple copies in the sideboard, Uh, but it's got main deck quality to it too. I, I don't think it's like a four of main deck that your entire strategy is built around, but mirror mage will push a lot of advantages for you. And I love the scaling on a planeswalker. So I still believe in this card. Initially, I was skeptical as to where this was going to show up, especially if aggro decks were going to be prevalent. However, as I've been going through and building decks, I I felt like, you know, this is a good spot for like two Jace's main deck or whatever. But the thing that has made me think a little bit worse about it is the DFCs and how you're, you're generally shaving some amount of lands. Like maybe it's, you know, you're only shaving one land or two lands or whatever. But these cards are also like pretty expensive a lot of the time. So it's not like, you know, you're hitting opt off it or whatever. You're hitting some seven mana card and it just dies immediately. So it does it does make things a little bit more awkward. And maybe you need to pay a little bit more attention to whether or not you can actually just zero this immediately when you play it. Or if you continually have to set it up with scrying. Mythics are going to blow up a lot of Jaces. Uh, yes. And my, my decks have a lot of the Mythics. A lot. So yep. I've noticed. And- I'm I'm pretty sure that's correct. So that's a tension that Jace is going to have to address. But like you said, it, it's kind of built to like if you get two copies, you get to scry before you activate the yeah 
zero. So I, I think it's going to be doing more of that than just trying to really quickly jam through your deck and like get lucky on zeros a bunch. It probably behooves you to try and set up more kick Jaces than just play Jaces. And certainly my opinion on that has shifted. I, I pretty much just thought like you'd play it on curve whenever and then kick it occasionally. And I think a lot of decks are going to have to really try to set up a kicker on Jace to get maximum value out of it. And then you have to figure out whether or not you can free roll one of the th- the thrones into your mana base to to make the kicker cost a little bit more palatable. Yeah, thrones been weird for me. Like obviously, any land that can tap for two mana is it should raise some alarm bells. That's a big deal. But I've had a hard time finding like appropriate colored sources in a lot of my decks, and especially with like Jace needing two pips. We talked about how that's much harder. And there's just a lot of things to account for. So even my quote unquote kicker deck, which was completely focused around the kicker mechanic, didn't initially include the kicker land. Might just be wrong. Maybe it's too powerful and it's something I should look at. But another very strange tension you have to answer when you're doing this deck building. Magmatic Channeler, 1R, Creature Human Wizard, 1-3. As long as there are four or more instant and or sorcery cards in your graveyard, this gets plus three, plus one. Tap, discard a card, exile the top two cards of your library, then choose one of them. You may play that card this turn. I like this card. I didn't know where it fit, and I think you you may have shown me how. I've had a few homes for this card. Uh, I think using it as a member of a party has been good for me. Using it as a discard outlet has been good for me, but just pure tribal wizards is the main space where I'm most excited about Channeler. Uh, I will say that over the past week, my opinion of this card has dramatically decreased, but it was really high. Like, I thought this was probably going to be one of the best cards in the set. I I fixed a lot of the issues you had today, though. You did. You did. And that matters. And maybe it's just a card that I have to understand a little bit more. And as I do, maybe it'll climb back up my rankings. Uh, Regardless, I still think this is a good card. I've built a lot around it. Here, Here are the big knocks I came up with against it. Four is another one of those numbers I was talking about that doesn't... It's it's a lot. It's huge. It's a huge, huge number. It's going to be very tough to get this online. And then even when you do four, four creature, it's not that big. It it just doesn't like really line up against what magic's about these days. There'll be many, many things larger than that. And if you're benefiting from the size of the creature, you're not benefiting from the looting ability. And when you get to the looting ability... I think it puts some really severe restrictions on how you build your deck because you have to make sure you're able to play whatever you reveal the turn you reveal it. And if you're just tapping to discard a card and you get two options, you're not able to play magmatic channeler is awful, like absolutely abysmal. So you need to build your deck with very lean mana curves and very few reactive cards, more shocks, less uh, lava coils, because you just can't afford to be revealing two cards that can't be cast. That's a huge cost. So if you are willing to address those deck building restrictions, I still believe Magmatic Channeler could be a very strong card. I just thought it was the type of card that you would jam everywhere and be good on its face. I no longer feel that way. You have to work for it. Yeah, I mean, you you brought up the point in our earlier discussion where you can't necessarily play this with counter spells because, like, you know, say on turn three you reveal a negate and a four drop or something, you just can't do anything. But I feel like you could try and pack a lot of instants or flash things into your deck and then still be able to maybe respond to your opponent by 
getting a negate off this or something, but then you run into the instance of like, what if you reveal two lands on your opponent's turn or something? And right. yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be tricky a lot of the time. So you're going to want to have some ways to maybe recoup a little bit of the potential loss card advantage here. Yeah. One of the things you did when we were talking about some wizards decks earlier that I thought was really nice was just push the double faced modal cards really far because then you get the option of spell or just playing your land with channeler and also get to grow your channeler more reliably because you just have more spells in your deck. Like yeah, in most instances, when I've been building decks, I use the double face cards to go from my typical 23 lands to a 27 land deck. Like that's generally what I'm trying to achieve. When it comes to magmatic channeler, I think you're supposed to play like 10 double face cards and then only 18 actual lands and get to a 28 land deck, but with very few true lands whereas in most cases i'm still keeping my true land count high yeah basically the tension with this is the tap discard a card i don't think you ever really want to be discarding an actual land to this because it doesn't do anything to further its growth right right so when when you have the dfcs at least then you're discarding a card that counts as a spell and then the other thing was just maybe including more cycling cards overall because we had a lot of reasonable spells that are one mana cyclers Yeah, so we were working on, like I said, the Wizards archetype and basically fit in a ton of the double-faced cards. I think we were up to eight copies of the the Mythics in blue and red and then a bunch of cycling cards. And now it started to look like we had a coherent deck on our hands that it was actually very powerful to getting huge benefits from being like tribal wizards and mana discounts on all these expensive cards. So I'm interested to get some games in with that archetype, but it shows that you got to work for it when it comes to Magmatic Channeler. I don't think my first passes were really doing the card justice. And that means it's probably a strong card, but not a broken card. Right. Ancient Green Warden, 4GG, Creature Elemental, 5-7, Reach. You may play lands from your graveyard. If a land entering the battlefield causes a triggered ability of a permanent you control to trigger, that ability triggers an additional time. So I kind of looked at this like... Okay, maybe this is just a a commander card. Like what land abilities are going to be impactful enough to actually matter? I mean, if you you want to talk about like Field of the Dead or Valakut or whatever, Amulet. I mean, Primeval Titan is going to do a lot of that stuff a lot better a lot of the time. So it's just like, what are we doing with this in standard? And I didn't really get it. And then you posted your rule list. And now you can talk about your rule list. Okay, here's the quick and dirty breakdown. I'm going to go through it real fast. 40 lands, eight of the mythic double faced, uh, a bunch of other double faced lands. I think there's 20 real lands, 20 double faced cards. Lotus Cobra, Dryad of the Elysian Grove, Azusa, Rada, four of this card, and four Nahiri's Lithomance, Lithoforming as the non land cards in the deck. Read that one. Lithoforming? Yeah. It's red, red, red X, sacrifice X lands. For each land, sacrifice this way, draw a card. You may play X additional lands this turn, lands you control, enter the battle, battlefield, tap this turn. So here's the quick and dirty version of the joke. You play a Lotus Cobra, you play an Ancient Green Warding, you cast Nahiri's Lithomancing for however much you can, as many lands as you have in play. You get to sacrifice all those lands, you draw five, six new cards. You then get to play all of those lands from your graveyard because you've gotten five or six extra land drops this turn. 
every single time you do, you generate two mana with your Lotus Cobra. You also have in your deck four copies of Valakut Awakening, which is put any number of cards from your hand on the bottom of your library, then draw that many cards plus one. You use that to go find more Nahiri's Lithoforming. You have Balaged Recoveries in your deck, which is the regrowth that you can use to rebuy all this Lithomancing stuff. Basically, as soon as you have a Lotus Cobra and a Green Warden and cast Lithoforming, I think you're a pretty large favorite to draw your deck and win the game on the spot in that turn because you have Rada Heart of Keld in your deck. You'll activate that, use it. You should have arbitrary amounts of mana at some point, basically. You'll activate that a bunch and use it to cast the one of Kazul's Fury, which is the fling, which is also in the deck, to just kill your opponent on the spot. Now, all of that is a three-card combo built around a two-drop and a six-drop and an X-Spell that you have to untap for. So it sounds pretty silly if you just look at it that way. But also, this is just a mid-range deck that never misses a land drop because it has 40 lands, has redundant access to all of the key cards by playing four copies of Turn Timber Symbiosis, not to mention Valakut's Awakening, which can just tear through your deck. And like Rata Heart of Keld, Dryad of Elysian Grove, Lotus Cobra into Ancient Green Warden on turn four or five, that's good. That's completely acceptable. Ancient Green Warden on its face is a 5-7 reach. It is going to be unkillable for a lot of decks. They're just going to stare at it. It gives you immediate value if you haven't made a land drop on the turn because you get to take something from your graveyard. And you have to know, for this to all work, you have to know that you get to play double face cards from either your library with Rada or your graveyard with Ancient Green Warden as a land. Regardless of how they got there, you get to flip them over and put them into play as a land. And that's the interaction that really breaks this deck. I don't know if this is good, but it's the most broken thing I've seen by far in this format. Yeah, with Dryad and Azusa, I don't think it would be uncommon to you know play this and then play a couple lands out of your graveyard. And okay, yeah, you don't have a Cobra. Maybe they killed this thing too. You've made a bunch of land drops and then you, you still have uh nahiri spell to just like cycle through a bunch of your deck and yep. presumably find something that matters you know uh balaged recovery is another one where it just gives you redundancy for what you're trying to do you know yeah and we have the red double-faced mythic land as well so you have ways to interact that's shatter skull uh smashing which interacts with your opponent's battlefield and this is just something that like this deck is not something you should be able to do in magic there's a bunch of pieces coming together that look unlike anything we have done before. And that's when, like, we throw the word broken around a lot. The way things actually break is when you do stuff like this. Because this is not what a magic deck is supposed to look like. Yeah, it's, it's breaking a bunch of rules. Yes. And it just means that you don't have to operate on the same axes as your opponent, right? Like, you don't really care what your opponent's doing because you're trying to just, like, goldfish them on turn five, six, something like that. And in the meantime, you're playing out dryads that are like two fours and gaining life off radiant fountains and stuff like that. So you're doing things that are still interacting while also contributing to your game plan. And you just hope that, you know, you can piece your thing together. And there's, there's not a lot of stuff that really interacts with things like this, you know, like the, the white Herald can, can slow down your land drops by making them each be tapped. A lot of them are going to each be tapped anyway, though. And yep. there's there's not really, you know, Thoughtseize or anything. Drown in the Lock requires a lot of cards in the graveyard to counter a lot of these things. So 
people can't really interact with you on a good axis. So it does seem like something like this could be really powerful. I think you could do some graveyard hate. I think graveyard hate would slow this deck down in a lot of instances. There's also like confounding conundrum, which as much as we hate that card against something like Uro, it's good here. I mean, it certainly stops what you're trying to do here, but the deck also has access, but it doesn't doesn't matter because the deck can completely change its game plan in post sideboard games and just look to play like big green threats and Lotus Cobra still works regardless of whether you're ramping or not. So I think you're not really limited with always going with this particular configuration. I'll also point out like having Radiant Fountain in the deck means there's a bunch of spots. Once you play your Green Warden that you're just going to be able to gain a ton of life by looping things through Lithoforming and cycling your Radiant Fountains over and over. So it's possible there should be more of those in the deck. I only have two right now, but Maybe you're just supposed to jam the full four Radiant Fountain and that's how you hold up against anyone who's really trying to pressure your life total. I, I don't know. Like the only reason I have Ancient Green Warden on my list is because this deck is so exciting to me. I think it's it's so special, but the card is really powerful and the big body is something that we really underrated when it came to like Cavalier of Thorns, right? And this reminds me of that card in many ways. You get you can get immediate value from it. It's just big and shuts down everything your opponent is trying to do. And it has the upside of just completely going off in some scenarios alongside your Lotus Cobras. So uh, this is by far the deck I'm most excited about. I am thrilled to tune it. And I, I, I just don't know how you look at this and be like, Oh, this is kind of mopey. Like, no, this does everything I want to do. And it has multiple game plans and is so, so well set up for the early weeks of the format. Yeah, I I think the thing that drives people off initially is, you know, your quote unquote combo is Cobra, Six Drop and Lithomancy. And then even still, you're going to do a bunch of stuff, but you could like fizzle or whatever, Mm -hmm. right? And yes, your deck has that capability, but that's like plan C. You know, you don't need to do that at all. You're, you're just, you're a ramp deck and you're, you're doing big, powerful things sooner than your opponent. And that's your plan a, and then you're, you also have this like absurd combo finish, which is wild for a ramp deck. Right. Yeah. So I, I think the, the tuning stages are going to be like, you know, solidify that plan a, make sure it actually works. Try to incorporate the, the backup combo plan and maybe see if you can find a way to do that like more consistently or whatever, find a good sideboard plan that pivots against people's potential hate cards. And it's like, like tuning is going to take this deck from, you know, like pretty good to over the top pretty quickly, yep. I think. Yeah, and I agree with you. Maybe, maybe it's like adding Omnath or adding Uro or some other different color or whatever. Like it, it could be a lot of different things. I mean, you have, you have Dryden and Lotus Cobra to, to start. So you have a lot of different options for things that you can do. Yeah, and if you're playing 40 lands in your deck, you can usually find room for some off-color ones. I just love the idea of like Dryad and Rada interacting together in a deck that has 40 lands in it. Like, do you know how often you're just going to get to rip two cards out of your deck and put them into play while keeping your hand completely full? That's such a good value piece. And this is coming alongside Lotus Cobra and you're maybe generating mana the whole time. It's just, you don't need to do the absolutely broken thing to get some really, really powerful game states out of this deck. Right. And your, your fail case is like, I have a five, seven, a two, four and a three, three that gets bigger. You know, it's like, oh, that's wow. going to beat a lot of people. So, and a full and a full grip and shatter skull summoning or shatter skull smashing in hand and a bunch of things just ready to go. And right. 
you know, redundancy on that card. I'll rebuy it with Balaged Recovery a bunch of times. And I don't know, man. I, I like this deck a lot. I am over the moon about it. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't know about this until basically like an hour or whatever before we were going to record the podcast. And now I have to do some Scryfall searches. Well, I posted a pretty medium version yesterday. And it was, like I said, it was founded on the idea of how many lands can I fit in my deck. And it hadn't really clicked at that point. Like, oh, I'm just supposed to maximize this Green Warden, Lotus Cobra, Valakut Awakening, you know, cycling type interaction. And it was more about just smaller bits of value all over the place and playing like the red removal spell. And I didn't have the combo kill with Kazul's Fury. So the idea was there, but I hadn't put together what the deck was actually trying to achieve. And I just couldn't get it out of my brain. It was like stuck. <laughs> it was all I was thinking about. And then today I was like, oh, this is what we're actually trying to do here. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Another couple of cards we're going to talk about, Balaget Recovery and Shatter Skull Smashing. We talked about in the context of this deck specifically, Balaget Recovery. We talked a lot about last week too, and yep. nothing has changed on that. If anything, I'm like, oh, I, I was thinking about playing like two or three copies. Now I'm pretty sure I should just be playing like more copies of this and more lands. Yeah. The, any mid-range deck I'm building is almost always thrilled to have copies of Balaget Recovery. You know, it doesn't fit in aggressive decks. I, I haven't played it in like my green-white counters decks and things like that. I think the untapped lands are pretty important. But if you can afford a tap land, and you, especially when you're doing like Uro type stuff, it feels like Balaged Recovery is always going to be part of the plan. Yeah. Uh, what about Shatter Skull Smashing? Like, this seems kind of expensive. You know, maybe doesn't kill the things that you want it to kill. Maybe yeah. if, if you're not really doing anything else, this isn't enough to get you back in the game. You know, I kind of find a lot of problems with this card, but it's a late game card that can also be a land. I started in the same place as you where I really wasn't that into this card. And it was just like, oh, I'm sure I'm going to play this because it's a double faced card. And that's just how these cards work. Like even the blue one I'm super low on. I still have plenty of decks that have four copies of it in my deck. Like the opportunity cost is just too low and you can think of good scenarios for it. So I, I agree that in a lot of instances, this is not going to do what you want it to do but the cost is super low. And a lot of the decks I'm including in look like this ancient green warden deck, which is going to put a lot of lands into play in general and going to ramp pretty regularly. And I, I don't know that you just like jam this into your mono red aggro deck. That doesn't make a ton of sense to me. I don't think the payoff will ever really be there, but anything that's playing more lands, I'm very happy to do this with. We mentioned wizards before and the, uh, what is it? Kaza is the cost reduction spell for wizards. Like combining this card in a blue-red wizards deck, that's a nice piece of removal. And you haven't given anything up for it. Like it all goes back to opportunity costs, where unless the format's super aggressive and you're getting hard punished for playing all these untapped lands, I, I think they're going to be staples of the format. But the decks that I'm excited about Shatter Skull Smashing with, you also have the option to play things like Shock, where a lot of decks in the format are not going to do that. So I think you can mitigate that early life loss better than some of the other decks in the format can. And now you have a two-for-one removal spell that you get to use against those decks too. So I think you can bear the cost of playing large copies of this card in all but the most aggressive red decks. All right, I guess I blew it. I didn't read Shatter Skull Smashing. Okay. <laughs> Where do you fall on it now that you've read it? Well, no, no, no. I mean, I just, I didn't read it for the podcast. Oh, okay. Go back. XRR, Sorcery, 
Uh, this deals X damage divided as you choose among up to two target creatures and or planeswalkers. If X is six or more, this deals twice X damage divided as you choose among them instead. And the backside is a land that taps for R. And as it enters the battlefield, you may pay three life. If you don't, it enters the battlefield tap. So this is this is the mythic cycle of uh, like big endgame spells that are also lands that you can pay to ETB untapped if you want. And this this cycle overall is uh, it's probably the most impactful thing, right? Like they're gonna they're gonna Just. show up they're gonna show up in a lot of spots. They should probably show up more initially. They're gonna eat up your mythic wild cards on arena. And occasionally, like, I don't know, it's weird. It's like normal magic decks don't do things like this, right? Like this is more of like a cube or commander feel for like a lot of these cards. And you're going to get that feel in a lot of your standard games now, which is kind of interesting. It is interesting. These these are the ones we were concerned about last week. The big yes. thing that's always the end game. I, it's, I still have some of those concerns, but like I said, we're in the deck building stages now and you don't have to deal with reality in the deck building stages. You just get to kind of live in these theoretical worlds. I so, try to deal with reality, but yeah. I check in occasionally, but mostly deal with the nonsense realm. And in the nonsense realm, all of these cards are just completely pushed and so format defining, so important. Even the bad ones are going to be four offs in many decks. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't gone that far to where I'm just like, yep, snap four of this card. I, I still feel like... You know, maybe I want to draw one per game and have the choice, but maybe it's like, maybe I want to have two per game and basically always have this option available to me if I want it. And obviously stuff like that is going to vary deck to deck and, you know, what matchups you expect and things like that. It's entirely possible that I'm not going as hard on these as I should. What I find is the more I stop and think about it, the more I find better reasons to have additional copies of these cards in my deck. Like you brought up a great one today when we were talking about the wizard's deck. And we well, yeah, up- that, that was one of the instances where I'm like, yo, just play eight of these. And yeah. I advocated for it, you know, but that's because yeah. of channeler. And I think it makes perfect sense, but you keep finding things like that. And like yeah. when I build all of my black decks, it's just like, Oh, well, you know, I'm not focused around the graveyard, but I can see scenarios where I just cast this Agadim's Awakening and I win the game on literally on the spot. The game ends because I had access to this card. And how do you pass that up when your deck is like, <laughs> in in particular, like my mono black decks, they're usually like 27 lands and they're all untapped. Like I, if, I'm if not pressured be, at all yeah. if I want them to be. Yeah. So, so why wouldn't I take this opportunity? It just seems like a no brainer. And also, like I said, I'm not using this to function as a land in my deck. That is the important, important thing that I think I still see some people missing. This is designed to get you to cheat on your mana costs and not cheat on the short side. I think you're supposed to cheat on the long side and it just guarantees you access to every single game of magic. Yeah, I guess that's the spot where I'm a little hesitant to go super deep on these is like, what if I already have enough lands and this card is not doing that much and now I, I have two of them? It's like, oh, I have the option to play it as a land, but I, I don't need to do that. You know, like I already have enough mana. So it's like, I want to get to that spot where it's like, I have enough mana and I have one of these cards, ideally. But obviously there are going to be like some games and some matchups where, you know, you want to draw multiple copies of them. Like the games are going to go long enough, but. One of the the brilliant things about this set that I'll point out is that Kicker is also here. So that scenario of I have enough lands, 
mitigate that in your deck building. Like find more ways to use that mana. And it's part of the reason why like Null Priest of Oblivion is so incredible, right? Like this is my two drop. Sure, yeah. When I'm up to six lands, I'm still getting paid on these cards despite that fact. And even uh, Skyclave Shade is very much the same thing where it's like, this is supposed to be my three one out of the graveyard. But if I happen to have a ton of lands, I'll find a home for the mana. Find homes for your mana. That's the best thing you can do right now in your deck building. Yeah, Null Priest changes that a lot where it's, you know, I could see situations where it's like, I'll just play four of both because getting to six mana is obviously very beneficial for me. Yep. And I was thinking about it in terms of like, uh, you know, mono black aggro type of stuff where it's like, where, where is my, my way to use excess mana? Like I, I couldn't really think of anything. It's like stone coil serpent, maybe demonic embrace or whatever. But yeah, if you're, if you're just playing null priest, which makes a lot of sense, then yeah, you just play four of both. And it's yep. they they feed each other, which is nice. Yep. Yeah. My my mono black aggro deck had Null Priest and Stone Coil Serpent and Skyclave Shade, and it also had Agadim's Awakening. Granted, fewer copies. I I didn't go for in that scenario, but like the more I think about it, the more I'm just like it's probably just supposed to be four copies in this deck. Dude, you get you get that Stone Coil Serpent back. Look at you. Mm, get paid. I wonder if there is any sort of like zero mana thing that does anything. I, I don't think there isn't standard, but like, you know, maybe going back to Pioneer or Modern or something you can do there. It, it seems a little silly, but if you are a Bastion of Remembrance deck. Okay. Yeah. You, you get a ting it, out of it. It's good. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if that's worth playing it for, but it yeah, I, pro- I probably wouldn't play Stone Coil Serpent in my Bastion's Remembrance deck just to do that. But right. Emerius call uh, four dub, 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 seven mana total sorcery. Create two four four white angel warrior creature tokens with flying non-angel creatures you control gain indestructible until your next turn. The backside is a land, uh, taps for white, can pay three life to make an ETB on tap. So this is the weird one where it's like, what sort of deck are you trying to like pay seven mana to make four angels? And I don't know, maybe your control, maybe your mid-range, maybe your your tokens. I don't I don't think it really matters. I think you're playing yeah, you're playing some amount of these, and then you just have the option to do it if you wanna. This is the wild one that has ended up as a four of in basically every single white deck I've built because I can't find a reason for it not to be. I think the scenario of casting this is just too real. It's gonna come up too much. And then if you just want to think about like what does this do for your deck? Well, I got to four copies in my green-white tokens deck because it was just pretty plausible that I would want to be able to still attack with my uh, Orin Reef Ooze and put a bunch of counters on things and keep my creatures alive and need some evasive damage in the air because that deck could get very bogged down on the ground. And my mana base looks solid. I have plenty of room for this, and I want to play somewhere between 23 and 27 lands. So let's go for Maria's Call. Next. And then I'm building my Felidar Retreat deck, which is like, I want to make landfall every turn. I want huge payoffs in my Felidar Retreat. And if I'm going to trigger my Felidar Retreat a couple times and I have a couple of 4 4 flyers in the air, well, that sounds real good. And I have a feeling I can put together a lot of Okos, one hit kills when I do that thing. So now I have four copies of Amaria's Call in that deck. And then I'm building blue white control. And I'm like, oh, I really don't want to give up the space to play any kind of win condition here. Well, now I have four Marius Call in that deck, and I was lower on this effect. Like, I wasn't really into the idea of paying seven in a lot of spots, but the more I thought about it, it's just like, this is fine absolutely everywhere. The cost still remains fairly low, 
and it gives you it gives decks outs. It gives you strategic lines that you would not have access to for the cost of playing a potentially tapped land, but in a lot of cases, just an untapped land that's going to do you some damage. And uh, a bunch of these decks are very good at using their life totals as a resource. Like for instance, the Felidar Retreat deck is an Uro deck, so there's plenty of scenarios where I'll build up my life total safely and not have to worry about that. I just can't find reasons to pass on this card. I didn't expect it to be as omnipresent in all of my decks as it ended up being. Yeah, as it stands, I think the blue one is the worst one. I agree. Uh, And then maybe the red one? So when I ranked them, I actually did this for Fact of Fiction on Star City this week. Okay, I ranked them. Let let me do it first since you already did this. Go ahead. from, From the bottom to the top, I would go blue, red, green, white, black. When I did it, I did blue, red, white, green, black. I was wrong. I would now do it blue, green, red, white, black. And the two other people I did Factor Fiction with, Ryan Overturf and Sam Black, had Amiria's Call as their best double-faced. And... I, I still don't agree with that, but I, I it's a lot closer than I thought it was. And the difference is not that big between Agadim's Awakening and Amaria's Call. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm coming around. Yeah, I'm I'm just I'm I'm thinking more of scenarios with you know awakening with null priest, and it's like, okay, this this is a solid reason to play four of these. And then like you mentioned, uh, you know, white has a lot of ways to gain life. And if you're doing band sort of stuff, you're going to have a row and that gives you more ways to gain life. And I don't know. They, it seems it seems impactful and relevant, the fact that you would cast this. I still think the yeah. black one is going to be the thing that like maybe you're building towards this. You know, like this is this is your end game plus your land and it's part of your plan, whereas the rest of them are just kind of like incidental. And if it happens, it happens. But the, yeah. the black one still to me is just like, no, nah, this is this is a plus. This is what I want to be doing. But I think Amarius call might be, you know, played in higher numbers, like more often you see it as a four of. Well, I guess let's move to the, the black card then. That's yeah. the last one we have to talk about. Agadim's Awakening, XBBB Sorcery, return from your graveyard to the battlefield. Any number of target creature cards that each have a different converted mana cost X or less. And the backside is the black land. So if you cast this for two, you get a one and a two. Assuming we're not bringing back zeros. Otherwise, it'd be yes. like a zero and a one or a zero or a two. Yes. And if you cast it for three, you get a one, two, and a three. And so on and so forth. And I specify that because a lot of people have misread this in a lot of different ways. And it's understandable. Tough, tough card to read. There's a lot of tough cards to read in this set. Don't get me started on Valakut Exploration. Don't this, even want to talk about the it. The text on this card is an SAT question, right? Yes. Like, <laughs> that's basically what it boils down to. But once you finally figure out what this card does in its entirety, it's it's you mentioned how it's like, this can be your plan. It doesn't have to be your incidental thing. But the messed up thing is that it's both. Like it just enables everything your deck wants to do so, so well that even if it's not your plan, the payoff for this card is going to be huge. So, so huge. And then like you have things like Arc Fiend's Vessel and just using this as a four mana 
reanimation spell for that yeah. is very impactful. Getting uh, back your Luris in a Getting back scenario. your Luris is huge. And then if you scale late and you're doing something like, say, mono black devotion and you jam this for five and you I, get a rebuy on like your I didn't grain even, merchant. I didn't, I didn't go that far. I didn't go that far. But I yeah. did because it's no cost to do so. That's the messed up thing. Like this is this isn't my plan for my mono black deck, right? Like I'm not trying to build a deck that seeks to reanimate gray merchant, but I can. Yeah, and, and I very well might in a lot of scenarios. And so many cards we talked about already play so, so well with this. There's, of course, uh, Acquisitions Expert, which is a card that I think will be reanimated with Agadim's Awakening on the reg. Uh, there's Luris, which is going to contribute this whole loop of buybacks. It's going to be so, so challenging to run black, aggressive, or mid-range decks out of threats when they have access to Agadim's Awakening at such a low cost to their deck building. Yeah, this card's busted. It's $8? Look, I don't really mess with the <laughs> paper speculation game anymore because it, it's weird. Like, there's nothing to do with these cards, but this card doesn't but, sound like it should be $8. But these are like commander cards too, you know? Yeah, this is, I mean, this is also a historic card, 100%. This goes yeah, in all yeah. the historic decks that do this type of nonsense. I, I, granted, we don't play historic in paper, but I bet it tracks to Pioneer very, very nicely. Pioneer got a lot of good tools for the mono black deck. This is almost certainly one of them. Death Shadow. You want to play this alongside I, I Death was, Shadow? That was honestly the thing I was thinking about in that moment where I was like, what yeah. can we do with this? Yeah, you can do a lot with this. You can do basically just about everything with it. $8, yeah, that doesn't sound right to me. I, I don't know. Forsaken Monument is currently more than this card. What what is why don't I know what Forsaken Monument is? Is that the uh, colorless card? Yeah, I mean that that card is gas. Okay, that, that has a lot gas. of appeal. I, I I but that's that's the other thing about this whole discussion is that the value of cards is not how much is this going to be played in a tournament anymore. That's not what is determining value. It's like as much commander, if not more so commander than anything else. So no, I know, I, I get but, it. But like this card right. is going to be played like in commander, commander too. I, Sc- I agree Scourge of the Skyclaves is fifteen dollars. Okay, I I got nothing anymore. This this card's infinitely Nahiri, better than Nahiri, Nahiri is ten. Infinitely better. Ooh, the red one is seven. All right. The I green one buying... is the green one is fifteen. That is driven by commander, my friend. It is. It's also playable in amulet, I think. But that's a very very good commander card for sure. You're you're kind of talking me into some full art foils on Agadine's <laughs> Awakening. Dude, Marius calls eight. Feels cheap to me. Dude, I, I think I think Awakening is is good. So I don't know. Oh yeah, I I'll probably pull the trigger on this and then just have them sit in the envelope they arrive in. I guess. Right. Yeah, but you know you did it. That's what matters. You can yeah. you can book the W. You can say you were right. Easy game. Four. Add to cart. Ah, oh, God, I wish I knew the next time I could shuffle cards. You know. Oh, uh, don't don't we all. All right, so I, I've decided I'm going to pull the trigger on Awakening, but do I buy the Calls and the Shatter Skulls too? And do I kind of like stick to my guns and only buy three of each? Uh, if you're buying them, you may as well get the full four. I know. I know. In fact, if you're if you're buying any of these, you should just get every single copy they have. That's how I buy Magic Arts. I'm, I don't, just, I'm like, I'll just take them all. They can't go down, right? Like, it's just not possible. Eight is way cheaper than I was expecting you to say. And if that's like... If we're trying to rank these cards, well, we're going to rank these cards. We're going to give you a top 10 list, but any any ranking would not have this as an $8 card if we believe the quality of card has something to do with price. 
this is so much money for no reason. Hashtag worth. All right. What if I buy these and then maybe they, they just like spike, they just go through the roof or something, or like maybe they double, I don't know, whatever. It's possible. Then I, then I can do like some giveaway or something on Twitter or in the discord. The, the price of magic cards has been wild lately. So I have my entire, well, the vast, vast majority of my collection uploaded to a collection tracker. And my assumption is like, well, nobody's playing magic and I have a lot of magic cards. So I expect to probably lose a lot of the value of my collection. It's a shame, but that's not what I'm here for. So whatever. And I've probably gained about 20% on the value of my collection <laughs> since all of this has started. And that's granted, a lot of my so stuff wild. is like, a lot of my stuff is locked up in reserve list, which is moving a lot of the price spikes, but still it's, it's not what I expected to happen given the yeah. global circumstances. Yo, is there anything else I should get while I'm here? I would, I would hate to have to place another order. How much are the ancient green wardens? I'm, I'm not concerned with that card. If they're $2 or something ridiculous. It is $20. What? I did not expect that at all. Okay. Don't buy that one. Commander. Yeah. Well, that's what's driving the prices. Boy, I'm glad I don't have to put this deck together in like week one for a paper tournament. That would be devastating to my bankroll. Boo-hoo, poor Brian. It's going to eat my Mythic Wild cards as it stands. Oh, yeah, sure. yeah. <laughs> that that I will allow you to boo-hoo about. Is your, we are, your... we are going to be Mythic-gated with this set, let me yeah. tell you. Well, I, I, I don't know. I think that's kind of okay because we are rare-gated before. Yeah, but I am so far past that now. Like I have plenty of rares and it's mythics that I end up short on every single time. For whatever reason, it's changed. I think like once you build the mana bases, you get to the point where that's not the constraining factor anymore. Yeah, but I, well, until it rotates and then you need all the pathways, right? Right. There's there's a, a lot of duels in the set. But yeah, the, the mythics, certainly, if it's just like you're playing white, you need, you know, two to four of a mythic or whatever. Yeah, I guess that every deck starts with four copies of the mythics that they are in that color because you're going to put them in your mana base every single time. Right. Not a bad strategy, Wizards. Not bad. I bet you'll sell some magic cards with this set. Kind of goes against what they said their mythic stuff was going to be about. They they gave up on that eras ago. That hasn't been the case. Hey, at least they made Lotus Cobra a rare, right? That's true. I could have stayed at mythic. I think it's been a rare for a while. I think it went there in like one of the master sets. Oh, uh, okay. Hold on. I'm, <laughs> I'm filling out my order before, okay. before I forget <laughs> Do you this. think? I just want to confirm this order on air once it happens. Just so That's right. Put, put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, I mean, this is this is one of the instances where we have this discussion, and it's like, yeah, like obviously I'm going to play like two of these cards in all of my decks or whatever, and then we keep talking about it. It's like, ooh, no, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play four. In, in that deck, and then it's like, oh, well, if everyone has to play four, then why is this card $6? I don't understand. Uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? All right, four Agadim's Awakening, four Maria's Call, four Shatter Skull Smashing. Booked. All right, well, now that I'm rich, we can finish off this podcast. All right, so it's time to reveal our top 10 list then. Yeah, I don't even want to reveal my top 10 because I think it would have changed uh, that, that is often the side effect of doing this cast as we talk with each other and we reevaluate our opinions. I, I think I'm good with mine. I, I think I'm okay with where things sit. Uh, yours is mostly good. Okay. So 
Coming into the cast, this was my top 10. Honorable mention, no Priest of Oblivion. Basically, all the stuff that I said is true to the point of like, you know, maybe this should have been on the top 10. Uh, but the set does have a lot of things that I stand behind and think are powerful and good. So this kind of like comes in at 11 for me. 10, I had the pathways. The, obviously, they're going to be all over the place and they're they're going to be very popular. It's just boring to put that on like the number one slot for your top 10. Number nine, Jace. Number eight, Omnath. Number seven, Aura, Skyclave, Herophant. Uh, but that that kind of comes with all the other clerics sort of packaged together with it. Six, Agadim's Awakening at six. Almost certainly should be higher. Five, Akum Hellhounds slash Landfall. Four, Skyclave Apparition. I have faith that these white decks can do something. This card will help. Three, Balaged Recovery. I think there's going to be a lot of mid-range and this is going to be one of the, the better DFCs for it. Number two, Zersan and Rogues. Stand behind the Rogues. And number one, Blood Chief's Thirst. Okay, pretty conservative number one there, but it's hard is to it argue with it. Boring pick, boring pick. Yep. Uh, let me hit you with my list. My honorable mention spot. I gave to Ancient Green Warden. I don't know if it's like the 11th best card in the set or whatever, but I just really wanted to talk about it. So that's Yeah, the, I mean, honorable mention shouldn't be the the 11th best card or whatever, then you just do a top 11 list, right? So I like your honorable mention. Sure. It's, it's certainly more spicy than mine. Sure. Uh, number 10, Acquisitions Expert. Like I said, the more decks I built, the more homes I found for this, and they all seem to have huge payoffs. Number nine, Shatter Skull Smashing. You can be a pretty bad double-faced card and still make it onto my list. And even if this isn't the best thing, stuff like the Wizard Synergies showing up in all the ramp decks, it's, it's just too low cost, and I believe in it. Uh, number eight, Magmatic Channeler. This is a card that has moved all up and down my list, and maybe I would have moved it further down having done this discussion and moved like Acquisition, Acquisitions Expert up, but it's somewhere towards the bottom of my list. Uh, number seven, Balaged Recovery. Same point as you. This is an important part of mid-range decks. It's going to remain there. Six, No Priest of Oblivion. I guess a little bit higher on this card, just because I think it goes in every black archetype. Uh, whatever deck I built, I found homes for Null Priest of Oblivion, be it more controlling devotion builds, the more yeah. aggressive builds. It just always fit. No, so you're clerics. Right. Uh, number five, Blood Chief's Thirst. Could be higher. I have no objection to you having it as the number one card. Number four, Omnath, Locus of Creation. I think it's archetype defining, and it's one of the few cards that feels unique in what it's doing and not just like this weird confluence of value, if that makes sense. Like so many of the other cards I have higher are not really higher for what they accomplish in the game. They're higher for the way they change the game. Uh, and I, I think Omnath is the best of just like good magic card on its face. Number three, I have the pathways. These could be anywhere from one to 10, depending on how you want to break down your yeah. stuff. Uh, number two, Amaria's Call, like I said, just fits everywhere. And I, I was low on lower on this card. The more I deck build, the more I'm just like, yep, free inclusion. It's going to win me a lot of games, and there's no reason not to do it. But number one is Agadim's Awakening. I think it's close between these two cards, but I do think they are by far and away the best cards in the set because they just change deck building and they change the end games of both these 
any black deck, any white deck, it's doing something new that it couldn't do before at very low cost. Uh, so that is my pick for the best card in Zendikar Rising. Awakening will get cast more often. Than Amaria's Call? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that assessment. And that's, maybe that's enough to push it to number one over the two slot. I, I do think, though, Amaria's Call just goes everywhere. Whereas Agadim's Awakening at least has the rider that you have to be playing creatures with it, right? right. So yeah, you yeah. go in the creatures deck. But I, I do think it's stronger once you have a creature-based deck than Amaria's Call is. There's there's also a little bit more competition in the black DFCs, I think. It's bit, sure. Like, if you're not playing creatures too, like it, you could play Murder or whatever, so... Yep. Uh, yeah, and I've had a few of those in my deck, so that seems reasonable. Yeah, I can see that. So if if I could if I could do the list over again, I I would probably just put all five of the mythic lands on the list. But then it's at fine. that at that point, I would just want to tag them all together. But yeah, I'd probably have Null Priest on the list. I still don't think I would have Channeler on the top ten. Uh, it, like very powerful card, just don't know where it goes. And that's kind of a strike against it. And also, like, even in the decks that you were building, it's like, okay, this might be the home, but I still don't think this is good enough. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, Acquisitions Expert, I, I could see being in more spots. And I'm, I'm pretty happy with Omnath, like, in top 10, but on the lower end. Okay. Just a quick rundown of some cards that were, like, on my first pass that didn't make it. Felidar Retreat, it feels like an archetype definer like you can 100% build a deck around it Powerful. or in reef or in reef ooze is way better than people think it is because it. it's downside it's downside is fine like it's just a four four for three that's not a bad card and then it goes berserk in some scenarios <laughs> so i'm fine with that card skyclave shade i think was overshadowed in a lot of ways by null priest of oblivion but it does a really good scrap heaps grounder impression card feels important especially for like pure aggressive black decks yeah i do like uh, that card inscription of ruin the closest of these to cruel ultimatum when you kick it. And Ew. I am messing around Dude, with when the, you put it that way, I'm off it. I know that's, that's not a good selling point, but I have been messing around with the green blue kicker Lord. I think that card is very good. And if you ever could kick either inscription of ruin or another card that almost made my list inscription of abundance, Arena you're going to win a lot of games. Yeah, that, that's possible too. I, w- I wouldn't put it past it, uh, but you're going to win a lot of games just on the spot. Uh, Inscription of Abundance seems like a very versatile card on its face. I love those type of effects in my aggressive green decks. Cargan Intimidator, a little weird that neither of us were high enough on this card to crack our list, but it's just like good red aggressive card, I think. Like I was pretty impressed with the combination of abilities. I I think it's solid. It's just like a little too man intensive. And like if you're playing like hyper aggressive landfall with the quote-unquote, new Goblin Guide, it is possible that you will not have a, la- a lot of lands on the battlefield. Uh, so maybe, you know, you're you're not playing straight landfall, you're just playing, like, mono red, and this is a good filler slot in in the two mana. But, yeah, I don't know. I just, I don't know what the decks look like that it fits, but obviously it's it's got, like, a lot of text and does a lot of things, you know? Like, maybe it's more of, like, a gruel card than a mono red mm. card, too. That could also be possible. Yeah, I buy that. It's a warrior too for party, so that has come up in my searches a few times. But because uh, warriors kind of got the short end of the stick, I think in a lot of instances. Nighthawk Scavenger, like I said when we previewed this card, it's almost hard to believe that you wouldn't have this on a top ten list. But it's it's just numbers and stats and damage, 
it, it kind of it still belongs there. It kind of fits with all the rogue stuff for me, so it's sort yeah. of it's there in spirit. Okay, yeah, I'm fine with that. I this card is important. We'll see play. I'm I'm pretty high on it. And then the last one I had was Tangled Florahedron. Uh, one of my favorite double-faced cards, actually, and it feels a little underappreciated. You either get to make your land drop or ramp, and yeah. that's really powerful for a lot of decks. I think it's going to be an unexpected superstar in the Gruel deck I talked about, but also you can do this alongside Felidar Retreat to accelerate to Felidar Retreat more reliably and still hit your landfall triggers. And I, I think a bunch of decks are going to be interested in Tangled Florahedron. It might just become a staple in mid-range style decks, actually. So yeah, the card I'm is on this card. Card is very strong, and we'll likely see a lot of play. Yeah, but on the whole, I am I am into this set, man. I have had such a good time building decks with it, and I am so so excited for it to release. And just haven't felt that way in a very long time, so it's nice. The deck building is so wild with all the DFCs. I love it. Yeah, and nothing busted. No four mana enchantment that doubles your mana. Right. That so, that's the big thing, right? There's shout, nothing shout here. out for that. There's things that conceptually trouble me. Like double face cards I find conceptually troubling, but I don't think any of them are just like going to break a game of magic in half. I'm not afraid of anything here in that regard. So that's really nice to see. Yeah. I mean Lotus Cobra, Landfall stuff will allow you to do kind of some wild things, but whatever. Yeah, we should also mention uh Lotus Cobra only not on this list because it's a reprint. Correct. It, it would have been on my list for sure. Yep, same. Do we have a question? We do have a question, and our question this week comes from Ben Buzz790. Haven't seen Ben Buzz around the Discord all that much. Welcome, Ben Buzz. Just, uh, but they have a great, great question. Yeah, only showing up with bangers. Yeah, so way to make your debut here. Uh, they want to know, are you a cleric, wizard, warrior, or rogue? Brilliant I, question. I am not a cleric. I am not a warrior. I would want to be a wizard, but I, I don't I don't think I have it in me. And I think that uh, last night I was talking to Nick Prince and we decided that all cats are just automatically rogues. Yes, 100 percent. And so I, th- I think I think that's my people. I think that's where I fit in. Interesting. I mean, <laughs> OK, OK. Like, so so what what did you think I was? Well, or, or I think what conceptually, think I was going to say I was. I thought you were going to go with a wizard, but see, here's the thing about rogues: is like rogues are kind of self-interested, right? And they're always looking to get one up on a situation and trying to benefit from other people. And that part of being a rogue, like, just doesn't track with you at all. Well, the rogues in this set are are very team friendly. Okay, that's true. They party up a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, n- not even the the party aspect, but just like working well with each other and like benefiting each other, right? Okay. So it's like they they have they have their squad, and yeah, you know, maybe maybe they're doing things to to benefit their squad, but I'd like to think that they're going after the bad people, you know, like they're the Robin Hoods. Okay. Yeah, I like that definition of rogue. Uh, it makes them more accessible to more enjoyment. I think. My cats are rogues, obviously, and they are not Robin Hoods. They're actually just jerks. <laughs> but they're they're the full blooded rogues. Yeah, yeah. They are self interested. Okay, now I need to have my answer. And so for my whole life, whenever I was playing like an RPG, like Baldur's Gate or whatever, I always played as the wizard. 
I like I, I identified with the high intelligence rating and things like that. And just like being able to manipulate magic always seemed very cool to me. So when I first saw this question, I was pretty sure I was going to go with wizard. But as I have thought about it more, I think it is very much in my nature to want to like heal and comfort things. Yeah, I was, dude, you're, you're a cleric, 100%. I, th- if, if, I think I'm a cleric. If we were doing like color identity stuff, I would, I would put you as a cleric. Here's here's where it broke down for me. Like in the same way, I think Rogue breaks down a little bit for you. Clerics are often very religiously aligned, and that is very very far from where I fall. So that's the part of cleric that feels a little off to me. But in terms of just like the healing aspect and caring for those around you, I, I'm pretty sure it's cleric. Damn, I might be a cleric too. <laughs> also, just also a ca- just a cast of clerics. Yeah. Also not. Uh, religiously affiliated, but yeah, I, I think I think it is okay to have empathy, right, and care about mm-hmm. others, and not be religiously affiliated. So, oh, one hundred percent, one hundred percent. So, I, I think I want to get some outside opinions on this. So, I'm going to post some kind of like poll in the Discord after this goes live, and I'm going to let our patrons vote, and they will define where they see us on this alignment chart, and we'll come back next week report the results of whether they think we're cleric wizard warrior or rogue yeah uh post that poll before the episode goes out for sure so we don't get you know the so we don't influence the, it. the data sullied yeah yeah good idea I'll, I'll do that right after we wrap here that's game Good luck.